Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On today's program, we'll hear from Paul Jackson on the recently concluded elections in Haiti. And we'll hear from James Malville on the guaranteed annual income being introduced into Canada. And we'll also hear from Teresa Turner on the prospects for real, meaningful proposals coming out of the Cancun Summit in Mexico. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of December 2nd, 2010. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Lawrence Cannon, is refusing to disclose whether Canadian soldiers transferred children suspected of working with the Taliban to an Afghan security unit accused of torture. Cannon says Canadian soldiers use special measures to deal with young detainees, but said sometimes, you can't tell an age. Questions about young detainees were raised in the House of Commons after a document obtained by the CBC's investigative unit showed that the Canadian military captured children in the fight against the Taliban and that many of them were transferred to the custody of Afghanistan's National Directorate of Security. The NDP is calling for a public inquiry on detainee transfers. The United States is facing a diplomatic crisis as the whistleblowing website WikiLeaks has begun releasing over 250,000 secret diplomatic cables. The cables have already proved embarrassing to numerous world leaders. The cables show the Saudi King Abdullah has repeatedly urged the United States to attack Iran. Yemen's president has helped to cover up U.S. airstrikes inside Yemen. Numerous leaked memos on Afghanistan confirm reports of widespread corruption inside the Karzai government. One cable from the United Arab Emirates shows Karzai's vice president once entered the United Arab Emirates with $52 million in cash. Other leaked cables reveal a secret U.S. plan to spy on U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and top U.N. officials. Also of note is a memo from the U.S. Embassy in Honduras from 2008 that clearly states the military coup that ousted President Manuel Zelaya was illegal and unconstitutional. The banking sector will be the target of the next batch of WikiLeaks releases, the website's founder Julian Assange has said. In an interview with Forbes magazine, the WikiLeaks founder refused to give any more details as to the company's identity, nor to speculate on whether it would reveal criminal offenses, but compared the scale of the release to that of the emails that came to light following the collapse of Enron. Thousands of delegates, scientists, and activists are gathering in Cancun, Mexico for the start of a two-week United Nations climate change conference. A new scientific report by the Tyndall Center reveals that up to a billion people could lose their home in the next 90 years due to climate change. The report also predicts up to 3 billion people could lose access to clean water supplies. Last Saturday, activists with Greenpeace launched a hot air balloon over the ruins of the ancient Mayan city of Chichen Itza. The balloon carried the message, Rescue the Climate. In Canada, over a dozen communities are holding people's assemblies on climate justice during the Cancun climate negotiations. Andrea Hardin-Donoghue, energy and climate justice campaigner with the Council of Canadians, 
says People's Assemblies on Climate Justice emerged during the failing Copenhagen negotiations as a vehicle for people to come together and talk about real and false solutions to the climate crisis. According to the groups involved in the People's Assemblies, a deal coming out of Cancun is unlikely, and with the recent killing of the Climate Change Accountability Act by the Senate, local actions against climate change are increasingly seen as critical to advancing climate justice. Irish trade unions have called for more protests and a national strike after more than 50,000 people marched through the streets of Dublin to voice their anger over the government's austerity plans. The call comes after Socialist MEP Joe Higgins rallied protest members for a 24-hour national strike on Budget Day. Between 2011 and 2015, the Irish government must make £8.5 billion of spending cuts and collect an additional £4.2 billion in taxation with an austerity program that will bring Ireland's generous welfare state to an end. EU and IMF officials will police the plan, and Ireland has been warned that if targets are not met, then Eurozone loans will be withheld until tax increases and spending cuts are ratcheted up. A coalition of 22 international NGOs and human rights groups have released a report accusing Israel of failing to make good on its June promises. The report, entitled Dashed Hopes, Continuation of the Gaza Blockade, says the system for issuing exit permits for medical patients is still arbitrary, unpredictable, and time-consuming. The report points out it is not just medical goods that are failing to get into Gaza, but many other desperately needed goods. In particular, construction materials, which are badly needed for reconstruction. The UN estimates that Gaza needs 670,000 truckloads of construction materials for housing alone, but the report says on average just 715 truckloads of construction materials have entered Gaza since the announcement in June. The report says that at current rates, it could take decades to rebuild the homes Gaza needs. UN experts say criminal networks in the army are an important cause of insecurity and conflict in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. In a report, the UN names top army commanders allegedly involved in the illegal mineral trade, including Land Force's Chief of Staff General Amisi Kumba. The report says rebels target civilians in the surrounding villages near the border with Rwanda and Uganda, and there have been reports of kidnapping, massacres, and mass rapes, fueled by the profits from minerals. The Democratic Republic of Congo is rich in minerals such as gold and diamonds, as well as minerals such as colton, used to make mobile phones. But after years of conflict and misrule, most of its people live in poverty. An in-memoriam classified ad to be run on November 27th on behalf of the family of murdered anti-mining activist Mariano Abarca R was called unsuitable by the Calgary Herald and then propaganda by a representative of the Edmonton Journal, although other Canadian newspapers, including the Globe and Mail, have published it. The Herald notified on November 25th that they were refusing a paid in memoriam on the anniversary of the death of Mariano Abarca. Former employees of Blackfire Exploration, a Calgary-based firm, are in jail in Mexico awaiting court appearances related to his murder. Two days after the original refusal, the Calgary Herald got back in touch and indicated that they might be willing to run the in memoriam, but only 
if all references to Blackfire Exploration Limited were removed, says Rick Arnold, coordinator for Common Frontiers Canada. We aren't going to agree to self-censure and to remove information that is based on statements of fact. Abarca, a leading anti-mining activist in the community of Chicamucelo in the state of Chiapas, Mexico, was gunned down outside his house on November 27, 2009. The Blackfire Barite mining operation near the town of Chicomuselo has since been closed by the state environmental ministry. A Canadian delegation to Chiapas in April this year found a community devastated by environmental destruction, intimidation, violence, and bad mining practices. Those are the alert headlines for this week. Now for Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of December 2, 2010. The World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth held in Bolivia earlier this year brought together social movements from all over the world to forge a powerful new movement for climate justice. Now, as heads of government are meeting in Cancun, People's Assemblies for Climate Justice are being held around the world. If you're in Vancouver, the assembly will be held on December 7th at the SFU Harbour Centre, room 1400 at 7 o'clock p.m. For those in Toronto, meet at the Sydney Smith Hall on December 4th at 9.30 a.m. for a day-long assembly. In his new book, Economic Democracy, The Working Class Alternative to Capitalism, Author Alan Engler proposes economic democracy as an alternative form of organization, arguing that unlike the capitalist system, which centralizes power with a small elite, economic democracy entitles everyone to a voice and equal vote in their community's economic and political decisions. Engler will be in Vancouver on December 3rd to launch the book. The launch is held at People's Co-op Books and begins at 7.30 p.m. This year marks the fifth year of Canadians Against Israeli Apartheid organizing in Toronto, coordinating much of the work done in conjunction with the wider BDS movement. In recognition of past achievements and with an eye to many more, friends, members, and allies are invited to attend the CAIA annual fundraiser on December 10th at the Blue Moon in Toronto. For more information, go to caiaweb.org. If direct action is your mode of participation of choice, meet at Vancouver's Waterfront Skytrain Station, Howe Street Entrance, at noon on December 11th to participate in Surprise Creative Direct Action for Climate Justice. For those in Toronto, meet at Nathan Phillips Square at 4 o'clock p.m. on December 7th to march in solidarity with those who are converging on Cancun to fight for climate and environmental justice. Dress up creatively and bring pots and pans for noisemakers. And that's Around the Left in Seven Days for the week of December 2nd, 2010. Paul Jackson is a Montreal writer who specializes in Haitian affairs. Together with his colleague Joe Gatson Deralciné, a resident of Port-au-Prince, Paul Jackson writes a regular column on Haiti that appears on the Canadian Dimension website. So, welcome to Alert, Paul. Oh, no, thank you, Michael. Nice to be with you. Now, uh, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the recently held elections in Haiti. Um, what were the results, and how are they being received by the general population there? 
well, it, it's not clear what the results are because it'll take some time uh, to calculate the results. Um, that is, it wouldn't be ex- they wouldn't be expected. I, I, uh, there'll be a date in December when the uh, when the results. I think it's December the 10th or 12th when the, when the first results would will be posted, and then um, there'll be a period where people are uh, are allowed to protest that, and and then there's an, so there's a whole there's a whole process that will that will go up to the end of the year. Now, there have been uh, international monitors uh, who are arguing that the, uh, in spite of a few incidents of uh, fraud, electoral fraud, that uh, the elections were by and large fair, but uh, the, it seems like there are uh, many uh, thousands of people, who, including 12 presidential candidates, who feel otherwise. Uh, what, what is your response to, response to those? Uh, well, uh, that's right. Um, for instance, uh, even... Uh, the Organization of American States, CARICOM, um, uh, said uh, they, you know, they validated it uh, along with the the Electoral Council of uh, Electoral um, Council of, um, of Haiti. Um, it's not. It's, it is no longer twelve candidates. There were twelve candidates on the day that refused the election, but Martelly and uh, Maniga uh, today. Or perhaps yesterday, well, both days said that they they're willing to uh, they're willing to carry on and to uh, and and to honor the elections. Well, of course, they both they both have a good chance of uh, of running off in in the in the, in the uh, in the runoff election. Likely, nobody got fifty percent of the vote, but uh, so there'll be if if no one you have to have fifty percent to win. So there'll be runoff elections after after the after Sunday's elections. There's a good chance. There's a good. There's a good possibility that both that either Martelly, uh, that both Martelly and Maniga will be in the running for the for, for still for the for that. So it seems that they've um, that that they've uh, moved out of solidarity with the twelve. Mm-hmm. Could you... um, and of course, and there were another four, including Celestin, who who uh, never never at any time protested the elections. Not unlikely that it's not uh, surprising that Celeste uh, didn't um, protest the elections because, um, in fact, it, it, all the evidence would demonstrate that would suggest that he had uh, uh, most control over the process and over over enormous amounts of money that no one can quite no one can quite understand where that money came from. And so, in fact, all of the fraud and the fraud is enormous. I mean, the fraud the fraud is not was not on the fraud was not primarily on Sunday. The, the fraud began long ago, and and uh, and Celestin was behind it. Celestin is the is the uh, well is the brother the son-in-law of the current president Preval. And uh, it, it it seems that everything that was done was was he was he was Preval's choice. Which means also we can assume that he was the choice of of the Haitian elite and and Washington. I mean, they they go together. Preval is Preval is 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 um, is just implementing whatever 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 Washington wants mm-hmm. at the moment. So we've seen that that's the kind of power that is that is behind him and enormous amounts of money that he was spreading around the country. So what about the other candidates? So what uh, who, who's uh, backing them, if anyone? Um, well, the, the other can, well, first of all, I mean, bef- just before we do it, in, in case we get too far away, uh, in, t- in case we get too far along, we miss it, the issue. 
the most important thing and the biggest fraud is that Fanny Lavalas uh, was excluded under a ridiculous technicality. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the election, the, uh, the Electoral Council, which has no authority to do that. In fact, it's, our, it's, it, it's, re, it's really unconstitutional as it's formed because it's, it was, it's only appointed by Preval, which is unconstitutional. So in other words, the Electoral Council is, is just his choice. Okay? And, and this time, I mean, ever, and all along, since, since um, uh, in every election that's come up, they found some technicality to exclude the biggest, the biggest party or the party of, of the poor in Haitian, the most popular party in, in Haiti, which is Fami Lavalas. This time, back in, back in, in July, they just, said, they just said, they made up a new rule, which is illegal and unconstitutional. They just said every, every uh, presidential candidate has to be presented by the party president to the council. They said that knowing that, that Aristide is, is in exile and that the government won't, won't give him a, a passport, so he can't possibly come to Haiti. So they, 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 that's how they excluded Lavalas this time. So first of all, that, that, no, one should even, no one should even be entering into this discussion without, with, without first saying the whole, the whole process is illegal right from the beginning and unconstitutional. And anyone who does even present themselves has to do it in, in the context of, <laughs> of an election that is already fraudulent bef- before, any, before any candidate was, was even named, because this one major party isn't allowed to, isn't allowed to play. Now, is this a, a reflection of the, the willingness on the part of the international community, including the forces that, uh, uh, let's say, escorted uh, Aristide out of the country back in 2004? The, are, are they pretty much determined that there isn't going to be a, a, a real democratic choice for the people of Haiti? Well, I, I, think that's a, I think that's absolutely right and well stated. All over, all over the world, we see this happening. How, how, how does, how does uh, Washington manage to, to, to continue to defend democracy? That is, that is to, to, to claim to defend democracy around the world, and yet insists that every, that every representative of the people, that is, every state, be, be run by its chosen Leaders. That is, people have. People have the only. The only choice people have is uh, is to c- confirm the <laughs> the government that that uh, that the United States wants, that America wants, that Washington wants. I mean. Mm-hmm. And so, in this case, it. In this case, if you look at the way the way this happened, they had they, the earthquake m- made it a bit easier for the for this council because that council that council already excluded. The, the the bigger the you know the 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 most important uh, opponent that is the masses of Haitians that is the poor Haitians and and it put all its money into into uh, on all its energy into Celestin that is making sure that Celestin would be uh, would would be would be elected there were but other people did there were a couple of of um, of um, Candidates that did capture the imagination and of 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 people, and you have, I have to say that one of them is uh, Martelly, and um, and the other one is Seyant. Now Seyant, uh, Seyant was Lavalas. He's Laval. I mean, he everyone knows he's Lavalas. He was 
he, 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 he can't run as Lavalas because Lavalas can't run. So he ran in, 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 in another, under another banner, but he was approved by Lavalas. That, that is, people that are the, the, in Lavalas that respect, uh, that are respected as Lavalasian, uh, approved of him that seance. The problem is that that is exactly what, what uh, Préval did in 2006. Préval pretended. I mean, people, people, have, people connected him with Aristide, and he let people think that. And he and he even he he presented himself even though he couldn't he wasn't he wasn't a, 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 a candidate of Lavalas, he called the party L'Espoir, and he let everyone believe he that he that he would that he would even bring Aristide back into the country if he was elected. Well, everyone knows he did he he did exactly the opposite. He just became a mouthpiece and an organ for Washington, and he's he's detested in the country that president now. Could so you? people were afraid that they would do, that 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 that. that Sayon might be the same, might might represent the same issue. In other words, what what if Sayon winds up to do the same thing? Just claim that he's that he's that he's behind uh, Lavalas, supported by Lavalas, but but really he's not. And so the people, the people like Martelly, Martelly became the choice of the people. Okay. And and mostly because he he his campaign was based on pretty much uh, not being afraid to tell the world where to go. Okay, just uh, very quickly, could you uh, tell us, given the uh, they're still recovering from the earthquake and the cholera outbreak, what are the prospects for real stability in the country, regardless of the uh, ultimate result of the election? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> well, beca- just beca- because of the of the process you see with this election, it's all part of the same thing. The prospects of 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 stability are really are really slight as long as. As long as Haitians refuse to be subjugated to foreign powers, and and they continue to refuse that, they 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 want they they really do want to run their own country, and that's and that's just not an option. As long as that's not an option, there can't be stability. Lawrence Cannon, Canada's foreign relations uh, minister, as well as Clinton and every and and, and all of the uh, all of the representatives of power and money say. That they, these elections were to bring stability to Haiti. Well, you can't bring stability to the country if you if 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 you're if you're telling it what it has to vote for, and the, and, and the people will reject that. So they're asking for stability, but but the process that they have set up to find stability will never work, because they're, they're, they believe so little in democracy. It can't work as a it can't. They're not. They're, they have no commitment to democracy. And and actually, the Haitians do. Okay. So well, that's, that's not stable. Well, Paul Jackson, I want to thank you very much for uh, participating in this uh, analysis, and we look forward to uh, future contributions from you as this uh, story develops. Thank you very much. Okay, Michael. Thanks. Bye. And Paul Jackson is a Montreal writer and contributor to Canadian Dimension. Ever hear of the guaranteed annual income? It's an old idea that surfaces every decade or so and then disappears until it emerges again. Some see it as the only way that we can eliminate poverty. Well, the GAI has surfaced again. Last week, a House of Commons poverty committee proposed a GAI for people with disabilities. A year ago, the Canadian Senate produced a report calling for a universal GAI. 
To talk to us about these reports and GAI, Alert has contacted James Mulvale, Associate Dean of Social Work at the University of Regina and Canadian Coordinator of Basic Income Earth Network. Welcome to Alert, Professor Mulvale. Thank you very much, Ashley. So, as I just mentioned, the GI is an old idea that disappears from and then reappears in political discussion in Canada. Why do you think the idea of a GI is resurfacing now? I think it's primarily because of the intransigence of poverty in this country. I mean, and in some respects, poverty hasn't got worse, but it hasn't got better either. We still have very high and unacceptable rates of general and also child poverty. So I think people are increasingly coming to the conclusion that our tattered social safety net with all its complexities and uh, its plethora of programs isn't doing the job. So I think there's some interest in rethinking things from the ground up and what might, at least in the longer run, get us to a, a, a much better regime at uh, reducing and eventually eliminating poverty in this country. Uh, very briefly, uh, for those people that don't know, can you explain a little bit about what GAI is and how such a system might work? Sure. The, uh, the, the principles that underlie kind of the pure model of guaranteed income is that everybody gets enough money to live on, that it, it's universal in that sense. It, it's set at a rate that assures a uh, a, a modest but, but dignified life, and that it, um, it it lasts for the duration of one's life, and it's expected that labor market earnings and I don't know investments or other forms of income would be could be built on top of a, a basic income, a guaranteed income, but that uh, that floor would be provided to everybody. In terms of how it works. Um, the, the two general mechanisms are uh, a universal demo grant that would go out as a as a payment to everybody. Um, the other model is a negative income tax, where based on your income tax return, you would um, get, get a certain amount of money if you were low income, up to a threshold at which, if you're making a fair amount of money, then the the negative the the, the tax credit would reduce to zero. How much are, are we talking about here? How much might it cost compared to what we currently spend on welfare? Well, I, I did some costing with an economist and with Professor Margot Young in a recent um, study for the Canadian Centre on Policy Alternatives. And in that particular study, we estimated that um, uh, a negative in- income tax version of um, uh, guaranteed income to bring everybody up to the low-income cutoff, one of our poverty lines, nationally would cost about $21.5 billion a year. Now, that's a significant chunk of money granted, but you can also uh, weigh it against our current expenditures on transfers in general and income security programs in general, which is $150 billion. So it's really just a fraction of what we're currently spending. Is this something that you think could actually happen in Canada? What would have to change to make uh, to to have this system in Canada? Well, I think a key ingredient is political leadership, and um, having politicians from all parties recommend uh, recognize the um, 
I guess, the evil of poverty in our midst in this wealthy country and commit to taking bold steps to address it. Now, in terms of, you know, political strategy, that could be in the sort of short to medium run, building on existing programs and making um, existing programs that have elements of, uh, of, of kind of the guaranteed income model already built into them. I'm thinking of things like the old age security guaranteed income supplement for seniors, the national child benefit, um, the GST rebate that goes to low-income people, maybe extending and expanding those programs in a sort of a fiscally um, affordable but, uh, you know, well-thought-out way to get us towards something like a, a, a guaranteed income system. And I think that's doable with, with uh, political commitment and with, you know, a, a commitment to redistribution in this country. In the longer run, I mean, maybe we could get to a point where there'd be a more like a demo grant, a universal guaranteed income paid out to everybody in a more simple, simplified, comprehensive program. What I, what kind of uh, income are we talking about here, like specifically? Like, are we talking about you know twelve thousand dollars per person, or like, what's is there like a specific number? There, there's no one specific number, and of course you have to design these carefully and sometimes the devil's in the detail but um, I mean the Globe and Mail recently ran a national story on the feasibility of guaranteed income and the, the merits of that approach and at least kind of threw out a figure of $20,000 per year per person so we have existing measurements like the low income cutoff that would give us benchmarks to maybe tailor the amount um, based on family size and uh, and where one lives in terms of expense of the local housing market and things like that. Who supports the, the GAI proposal? Well, on the political front, uh, um, one champion of a negative income tax version of uh, guaranteed income who's uh, been talking about it a lot is Senator Hugh Siegel. He's a, actually a conservative member of the Senate, and he's been a proponent of... Uh, guaranteed income for, for many years as an alternative to existing last resort programs like social assistance. Our group, Basic Income Canada, uh, promotes debate and discussion about guaranteed income approaches. Um, there's quite a few academics who have been looking into it. Um, one of them has done really interesting work. Uh, Dr. Evelyn Forger from the University of Manitoba has done very interesting work on um, the effects of a of a guaranteed income experiment in the 1970s in Dauphin, Manitoba, and has demonstrated some very positive effects, like high school students staying in school and um, uh, maybe lower hospitalization rates in the local health services and things like that. Um, you'd mentioned that uh, conservative senator is a really big supporter of this program. Why do you think uh, that conservatives, why the GI would appeal to some of them? Well, for a lot of people who are, I guess, compassionate conservatives, shall we say, uh, it appeals to them because it, it can eliminate some of the uh, bureaucratic oversight and policing of people. Um, it, it can sort of add to human freedom in the sense that uh, you don't have to justify yourself to, um, you know, people in the bureaucracy about needing to, you know, pay the rent or 
feed your kids or make meet your other basic needs. So it gives people a little more kind of discretion and choice with that guaranteed basic income that they can depend on. Um, and it could, you know, potentially lead to some simplification of the existing kind of bureaucratic welfare maze. So as a, as one final question, I wanted to ask about uh, the GAA, it kind of, it tends to like recognize unpaid work. So for example, house, yep. uh, housework, child raising, volunteer work. How do you think that this might affect the lives of Canadian women? It's an interesting question. There, there's some debate about some um, women uh, or, or some feminist academics are concerned that uh, guaranteed income has to be set up in a way that it doesn't turn into a pink-collar ghetto and kind of trap women in, in, uh, in home roles, raising children and, and doing domestic labor, because often, not always, but often, it's the man who has a higher income. So, so there are certain families might want to keep the man in the labor force and the women may withdraw to some extent from the labor force. So I think that's something that you can build, you can kind of take into account when you design a program to make sure that it's a, it's a, it's a leg up for women and gives them more options in terms of labor market entry and labor market attachment. And also, I guess, uh, provides some incentives to men to take on their fair share of domestic labor and, and childbearing because even if they're not working in the, the wage labor market, they're still Um, very quickly, we were just about out of time. What what odds would you give that this would happen, say, in your lifetime? Okay, well, I'm pretty old, <laughs> so um, <clears throat> I, I think that um, I, I think we can make. I, I could foresee if the political stars align and if there's if there's a sufficient public support, I could foresee us making incremental steps in the direction of guaranteed income over the next five to ten years. Some of the things I mentioned earlier about improving the national child benefit, improving uh, universal programs for seniors, etc. Um, I don't know if in my lifetime I'll see a, a, a you know a full cloth pure model of guaranteed income delivered through a demographic system that may not be in the cards in the foreseeable future. But we do have a history in this country of building incrementally in, in social welfare programs. Um, and occasionally taking a big leap. I think Medicare is a good example. That you know, Medicare started in the 1930s in Saskatchewan, and it was Tommy Douglas and others that pioneered it. But then the 1960s, it went national and became universal. So I would like to think that we might kind of go that route, build slowly, but then turn a corner and really see it implemented on a big scale at some time in the, the medium future. So where can people go for more information about guaranteed annual income? Basic Income Canada has a website, and the web address is biencanada, that's B-I-E-N-C-A-N-A-D-A, dot wordpress dot com. There's also a um, website for the Basic Income Earth Network, the international group, and its web address is basicincome.org. But thank you for speaking with us, Jim, and we will keep our eye on this and see what comes of it. Okay, thank you, Ashley. Alert has been speaking with James Mulvale, Associate Dean of Social Work at the University of Regina, on the guaranteed annual income.
The next major round of UN climate negotiations is currently underway in Cancun, Mexico. Taking a keen interest in these and past climate negotiations is Teresa Turner. Teresa is Professor of Sociology at the University of Guelph and a member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. She spoke to us as she was catching a flight to Cancun. Welcome to Alert, Teresa Turner. Now, most envi environmental organizations and other observers uh, following last year's climate talks expressed the view that the Copenhagen summit was a bit of a flop, with no resolutions or agreements uh, truly meaningfully addressing the urgency of the problem. Are there any expectations that the current meeting will be any different? Well, on the government side, um, it looks rather grim because there's a big effort by key countries to scuttle and uh, basically kill the Kyoto Protocol that was established in 1997. Uh, 2010 was possibly the hottest year in recorded history, and uh, we have, of course, uh, multiplying climate crises and multiplying crises associated with oil and gas production, especially as we have the tar sands uh, crisis for climate, water, land, indigenous rights, and Canada's reputation in the world um, to, to confront at a time when the Senate has just, uh, on 16 November, um, killed the climate uh, bill that had been passed uh, last May, uh, the uh, energy um, bill C three eleven. That's right, bill bill C three eleven. Senate killing that climate bill means that Canada is stepping back from uh, the uh, Parliament uh, decision to support and and move towards emission reductions of twenty five percent below nineteen ninety levels by the year twenty twenty. And indeed, even that is half of what uh, many governments, including the Bolivian government and others, are demanding at Cancun. Hmm. Now, uh, the, you're mentioning the, uh, the, the Canadian position. Uh, would you essentially uh, call them sort of among the, the laggards? And uh, are, they, uh, are there other countries that are aligning with Canada to basically block any meaningful action on this uh, file? The developed uh, or industrialized countries, yes, are working with Canada. Canada was uh, waiting to get in line with the United States. The United States is moving very much to the right on this matter. Um, as we saw in the last uh, round of elections in the U.S., the Republicans, which is very much the party of big oil, is um, not to say that the Democrats don't support big oil, uh, but the Republicans are for deregulation and uh, the initiatives on these climate talks are very much towards deregulation, towards voluntary um, targets for emission cuts in the industrialized world and um, efforts to create broader opportunities for profit-making through a lot of false solutions like carbon trade, uh, like clean, so-called clean development mechanisms, um, carbon offsets. These are technical uh, pseudo-fixes that do not reduce the amount of pollution in the air um, and, in fact, allow it to continue. And, indeed, if the kinds of uh, voluntary targets that are now being 
put forward by largely by industrialized countries are considered in terms of the danger, what we could have in the worst case scenario is actually an increase in carbon emissions of some significant quantity by the year 2020, such that we would have we would be faced with an uh, increase in the global average temperature of almost 4 degrees centigrade, which would mean the end of life on Earth. Hmm. Now, there's uh, a, a number of new market mechanisms that are, are being incorporated into this, uh, this uh, new document. Uh, could you maybe explain a little bit about what they're talking about, uh, the, uh, the read? Uh, yeah, the, the REDD is being put forward by, the, by some governments. Um, it's the reduce emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. And it's a very bad uh, make-money project. Right now, perhaps as much as 20% of uh, greenhouse gas emissions arise from the cutting down of forests, mainly illegal, much of it is illegal logging, a good half of that 20% is illegal logging in only two countries, Brazil and Indonesia. And what the REDD does is say, okay, well let um, corporations and other parties, mainly in the global north, continue to pollute by buying pieces of the atmosphere, uh, through buying carbon rights, carbon pollution rights, and paying parties in the global south, and here we're talking about Indonesia and Brazil, which have these huge forests, paying parties in the global south to clear the people out of those forests and allow those forests to either stay as they are or be turned into monocrop uh, tree plantations, perhaps for biofuel based on um, palm oil, or maybe soy plantations for biofuels. Um, and, of course, these kinds of monocropping uh, initiatives drastically reduce the carbon absorption capacity when compared with the natural forest with its uh, ecological diversity. So REDD is a very bad solution, and it's being strongly opposed by uh, an international movement now that came to um, a kind of uh, organizational um, advance at the uh, April 2010 Cochabamba World People's Conference on Climate Change and the Rights of Mother Earth. Now, what, uh, what the impact of those, uh, what, what were the major proposals coming out of that, and, and how, to what extent are they being uh, addressed or, or taken seriously by the, uh, this uh, upcoming or this ongoing summit here in Cancun? Well, the Cancun summit was um, based, the, 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 the governments are negotiating a document. And this document um, has a long history, and it's going through many iterations. Um, there, it, it, it largely reflects the secret, uh, undemocratically imposed, so-called misnamed Coach, uh, Copenhagen Accord. And when people gathered in Cochabamba, these were social movements. There were many governments there as well. The ALBA governments of Latin America were prominent. That is um, mainly Bolivia, uh, Venezuela, plus six other members of ALBA, uh, a Latin American progressive uh, intergovernmental organization. They put forward it 
the Cochabamba meeting, um, there were the reports of 18 working groups, 17 official, one unofficial, and these working groups generated uh, uh, an accord called the Cochabamba Accord, which can be seen on the Internet. And the two key points about the Cochabamba Accord, first of all, the idea of it, it, brought, it, is a, it is a manifesto, it is an international undertaking, an international agreement that says let's limit global warming to one degree centigrade, which means a very, very, very drastic, even 90% cut in fossil fuel use, um, in, in emissions based largely on what the oil industry is doing, the production of oil, gas, um, and to some extent uranium. So that we would move rapidly off of fossil fuels. We would keep the oil under the soil. We would keep the coal in the hole. We would keep the tar sand in the land, to use the uh, Oil Watch Ecuador um, slogans. So we have this manifesto bringing all these different movements, whether food, it's about food sovereignty, or it's about forests, it's about um, anti-GMO, anti-geoengineering, which is a nightmare, uh, it brings all these different movements under one umbrella, which is about system change, moving to a post-capitalist, post-fossil fuel, post-industrial world. So we have the manifesto bringing together all these movements, and then we have the proposal to form a world people's movement um, for to defend the rights of Mother Earth. Is One of the very important things that came out of the Cochabamba meeting was the demand that this accord be the basis for negotiations um, for a real solution, a fundamental solution to climate change, and that we all, uh, in all our different countries, all our different local communities, mobilize to press our politicians, to press our municipal, provincial, and federal government to adopt the people's agreement uh, to really address the root causes of climate change and create a world where we can actually live and, and our, our grandchildren, our children, our grandchildren will have um, an environment within which they can survive. Well, okay, I uh, probably should let you go then, and uh, I thank you very much for uh, sharing your thoughts with us, and we'll see how things develop uh, with Cancun and post-Cancun. Thank you very much for joining us, Teresa Turner. Thank you. And Teresa Turner is a University of Guelph sociology professor and member of the Canadian Dimension Collective. Hi, this is Mitch Pollock, and this is Music is the Weapon. And on this week's show, which coincidentally is our last show until New Year's, till after New Year's, I'm presenting no songs, zero words, no great thoughts. I'm presenting some amazingly good music choosing the music this week really is what moves me and that is exactly what I hope will move you as well so let's start with Beyond the Pale who are a wonderful klezmer group from Toronto playing Turkish Delight
That was Beyond the Pale with Turkish Delight. And now, folks, I'm going to introduce you to something brand new. Actually, something very old, but probably very brand new to almost everybody listening to this show. I'm going to introduce you to a new instrument. Well, again, a very old instrument. It's called the dulciola. And what it is, is a piano keyboard on top of an auto harp. And it's the strangest little thing. It was built around the 1890s time, and they only built 100 of them. And I think there's only one or two players in North America. And Andy Cohn of Memphis, Tennessee is one of them. And here he is playing the classic Rock Island Line.
That was Joe McKenna playing the Illin Pipes, which is a really strange-looking hand-bellowed pipe, on Fred's Favorite and Cooper's and Brass, and before that, Andy Cohn playing the Dulceola and playing Rock Island Line. Now, we're going to have a moment of classical music. Actually, it's a really interesting piece of music put together by the late Frida Epstein, and what it is is Telman's Canonic Sonata Allegro in G minor, which then morphs into an Appalachian tune called Black Hawthorne. Here it is.
That was Freda Epstein playing the Telemann Canonic Sonata Allegro in G minor and the Appalachian tune Black Hawthorne. That's it for this year, folks. We'll be back in January with a whole bunch of new tunes. You know, one of the most interesting things is that music is probably the most international of all human phenomena. It crosses every border. And to play just tunes today was an awful lot of fun. So here to finish is Leo Kaki playing All I Have to Do is Dream. Well, that's our show for this year. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back in January. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also broadcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producer is Tommy Allen, assisted by Selena Serbinuk. Alert headlines by Chris Webb. Around the Left in Seven Days by Ben Wood. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.